Goeiemorgen, vader Russell Pollard. Good morning to you. Goeiemorgen, vader Emma. Hoe kan dit? Nee, kan nie klaar nie, kan nie klaar nie. Bikkie swak, maar anders dit goed, dankie. <laughs> good, good, good. There we go. Russell, you had a full few days at the ANC National Policy Conference, but you've also written a wonderful article in the Daily Maverick. And let's go through that, because um, we're wondering whether is reform really possible in the Vatican? Some rather earth-shattering things have been happening there. Tell us about this. Yeah, you know, last week, uh, uh, Cardinal George Pell, who has been heading up the Secretary for the Economy, uh, was charged uh, in in Australia uh, with sex abuse uh, cases. It's not quite clear whether the sex abuse was um, things that he covered up as a bishop or actually done himself. Uh, there's rumors that both are going to be uh, revealed, uh, which is a big blow because, you know, the, the one thing that the Pope really needed to sort out was the Vatican Bank. I mean, the Vatican Bank, as it was called, uh, was quite, uh, you know, badly in trouble, and there were all sorts of allegations of corruption. And Pope Francis originally sort of indicated that he preferred to get rid of the, the Vatican Bank altogether and that the church would bank with, uh, you know, normal commercial banks. Uh, but there was a lot of resistance to that. So he put uh, Cardinal Pell in charge of the reform of this whole economy of the Vatican, uh, which has got very far-reaching effects because even, for example, the area I'm familiar with, uh, communications, uh, you know, in the Vatican, Vatican communications, has been uh, impacted on by what Pell has decided to do in terms of the way that money is distributed and, 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 and budgets, etc., etc. Yeah. This is a real big blow for, for the uh, Pope and for the reform. Uh, and just a few weeks before that, a man who was uh, Limone, who was an auditor, also just quit. Uh, top Italian auditor, just quit the Vatican Bank um, or, or the Vatican economy, and we, we were never told why. So it seems as if there, there um, you know, are all sorts of difficulties there. Anyway, and then a day after the Pell story broke, there were rumors on the wire, hot rumors, that Pope Francis was going to fire Cardinal Gerhard Müller, who, is the, uh, who was the prefect for the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith. And then it turned out that actually... Uh, technically, he was not being fired, but his, uh, his five-year mandate was up. He was put in by Benedict in 2012, just before he resigned. And Pope Francis decided not to uh, go and uh, review, uh, renew that, that mandate. Mm-hmm. And lots of people were saying, well, you see, this is Pope Francis trying to settle scores because Muller was somebody who, uh, you know, criticized the Moris Laetitia and has been critical of some of the, the, the more doctrinal kind of things that people think the Pope has been saying. And so uh, even John Allen, who I, who I took umbrage uh, with, uh, said, uh, you know, um, this, is, this, is, this is personal. This is not ideological. This is personal. Mm-hmm. But what's lurking behind that, as far as I can see, is that the CDF, once the Commission for Child Abuse uh, and Protection of Minors has looked at stuff, they passed it on to the CDF for action. And it seemed as if Cardinal Muller and certain people that worked with him at the CDF have been very obstructionist in trying to get those cases uh, moving. And there's, there's a 2,000-case backlog. And the high-profile resignations from the Child Protection uh, 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 Commission, which Pope Francis set up, headed by Cardinal O'Malley, uh, like Mari Collins, the Irish sex abuse survivor who's been very vocal, and Pope Francis handpicked for that commission, she quit, and she cited that Muller was the reason that she's going, because she just felt that 
that nothing was, was getting through there. So I found it quite interesting that some Vaticanista like John Allen never mentioned this in their analysis of the, of the Mueller thing. And I think given what's happened to Pell and now, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the backlog yeah. and the fact that Mueller seems to be not taking this whole sex abuse thing seriously, that's really the reason that Pilkansas decided not to renew his mandate. Uh-huh. Broadly speaking, broadly speaking, I think the Pope's having a very difficult time trying to uh, sort of reform the Vatican. It seems on, on every corner, uh, you know, this institution is not going to change very quickly. Um, and you've got a scenario where many times you've got families who have worked in those Vatican offices generation after generation. So they stand a lot to lose if suddenly, you know, your job is, made, is redundant. Yeah. Um, so I really do wonder if the, if the Vatican can be reformed. Mm. And what about uh, the, the replacement of uh, Muller now? Is he, is he a very progressive sort of guy? No, I mean, this is the same thing. I mean, people are going on and on about, you know, uh, that was the other thing that people were very upset is that Muller was one of the last Benedict appointments. Uh, he studied the theology of, of, of Ratzinger. Um, he wrote his doctoral thesis, The Daily Maverick, made a mistake. I did put doctoral in there, and they've changed it. We've edited it to doctrinal thesis. No, he wrote his doctoral thesis on the theology of Ratzinger. And he is clearly a, a kind of Ratzinger man. People on the more conservative side are worried because this is the last man that Benedict had on the inside, you know, to protect the, the, the sort of uh, integrity of the faith and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Lodaria, the Jesuit, who Pope Francis has now appointed to take Muller's job, was second in charge has been at that congregation since 2008, so longer than Muller. He's a Spanish Jesuit, and he certainly would not be by any means uh, progressive. I mean, Ladaria, in many ways, represents a much more conservative wing of the Society of Jesus, because I'm sure, like you find in the Dominicans, some are more progressive than others. I mean, Ladaria certainly uh, is, is on the more uh, uh, um, uh, conservative side. Mm. And uh, he was appointed by uh, Pope Benedict uh, in 2008, which gives you an idea of, of where his theology is anyway. Mm-hmm. Interesting uh, that he was appointed. I, I thought that uh, maybe Francis would appoint uh, Cardinal Schönborn, who had a lot to yeah, do that with was the, a, with That the, was a rumor on Friday. Yeah. Schönborn's name was bandied about. Yeah. Um, and also, funnily enough, uh, Cardinal Tagle from Manila. And I saw some people being very, very uh, nasty about Cardinal Tagle's theological competence on Twitter when, when the news broke. <laughs> um, some of those really, really right-wing, dare I say, almost even fascist yeah. um, sort of websites in the U.S. Were, 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 were going wild on Friday uh, that Mueller was going to be fighting his injury replaced by Tagle. Yeah. Um, so Tagle or... or or Sherborne might have been a, a bigger shift in, in kind of worldview and theology. Mm. But I don't think we're going to see too much of a change under Lotario at all. Yeah, um, okay. Curiously, he's 73, yeah. and uh, Muller was 69. It's unusual for a head of a, a prefect for a congregation to um, you know, be taken out after one term, especially the CDF. Yeah. And especially because Muller's 69, if he did another five years, be 75, to be yeah. retirement age. Nadar is only going to do two years and he's going to reach retirement age. Um, and that's why I don't think it's a theological doctrinal thing. And that's why I think, you know, putting emphasis on the differences maybe between people like Muller, who insists there is no difference, and, um, and, uh, and, and the Pope, uh, is to misconstrue what's happening. I think the, the, the Pope is really concerned now that this high-profile sex abuse cases literally hit the very top echelons of the Church, that... Uh, 
you know, if there is allegations that Mueller is not moving this stuff, he's got to do something about it. And maybe he thinks that that's what Nadaria is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Mueller also told media that the Pope had said he was, he was not going to appoint the heads of Vatican congregations uh, for a second term, that after their term was over, uh, he, he wouldn't do it. And Mueller just happened to be one of the first whose term was up. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, and I think that's a very wise way of governing because, you know, Benedict was stuck in the CDF's office for 20 years or so. You know, yeah. I don't, even in the commercial world, you know, CEOs of companies normally do six or seven or eight years. So yeah. I think a change is a good thing from that point of view. All right, yes, yes. Anyway, but so you were reading between the lines now. What you're saying is reforming the Vatican mm, is a bit difficult. Yeah, I think it's a project that, um, you know, Francis was given by the Cardinal um, when he was elected. And I'm saying, well, I think it, it's, it's been a much more difficult and is being a much more difficult thing to do than what, for example, Francis uh, thought. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, from, from afar and from some of the sources I speak to, there, it seems as if there's a lot of resistance on every corner mm-hmm. to to uh, some of the things he wants to do, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot at stake. I mean, if you're, you know, we've got to understand the mentality of Italians and we've got to understand the mentality of the Vatican where, you know, for, for decades or even centuries, certain families have been working in certain areas of, of, of the Vatican. And, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, it's, all, it's almost like it's passed on from generation to generation. Now mm-hmm. suddenly this new pope comes and he wants to shut down that office or say, oh, we don't need five people, we only need two well, you, you've got a lot to, to lose, and so yeah. people are not going to take that mm-hmm. when they're going to fight it, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, all this, this uh, upheaval that's going on in the Vatican now, Francis seems quite calm and, and reserved, and, and he, you know, he just faces all these things and moves on. I mean, it's, it's indicative, I suppose, of a, of a very deep spirituality. Yeah, I mean, that's the strange thing. I mean, I think that, you know, he is sort of serene, and he is sort of, um, you know, he's calm about it, and... You know, he's not going to... I mean, I think this whole dubious thing and, and the big uh, deal that certain people in the church have made of it, mm. um, I mean, I think that's indicative of the way that Francis handles things. I mean, he has not uh, really responded. He's responded indirectly, I think, a number of times mm. to, to their concerns. But, you know, he doesn't seem to be ruffled by things like that. And I think that's important because he's got to maintain a sense of calm and a sense of balance about, you know, mm. if he reacted to every single thing, right. I mean, he'd be, he'd be a complete uh, wreck. Right. And so I think he does manage to uh, maintain a serenity, but I think you're absolutely right. I think this is rooted in a deep sense of who he is himself. He's comfortable in his own skin yeah. and, and a real deep sense of spirituality. Yeah, there we go. All right, well, look, we can go on and on about that, but thank you for those thoughts and those very challenging insights that you have there. Can we move on to the Winter Living Theology course? How is that going? Very well. You know, we've had record numbers in Johannesburg, uh, Father Emil, this wow. year. Um, we normally only get 60 or so people who come for the three-day course. We have over 80 who have been attending. Oh. Um, I think um, Father Tom is a very uh, good speaker. and yeah. certainly is um, he, he, there's a lot of humor, and he tells a lot of stories against himself, which I think people always enjoy stories. Yes. He's just a very good uh, orator. Yes. But um, I, I, think it's, I think it's clearly uh, something that the topic addiction, you know, oh, yes. addiction and recovery, it, mm. it's something that afflicts our South African society. And maybe that's what's brought people in. I mean, a number of people there are either talking about you know, their uh, children who are struggling or a spouse that is struggling with some form of addiction or another. Yeah. And it, it sort of highlights how in some ways, the, the church has not really responded well or, or just doesn't know how to respond mm-hmm. or have the capacity to respond to mm-hmm. people 
who find themselves in these dire circumstances. Are there a, a good sprinkling of priests, clergy? Yes, there are. Um, you know, there have been a, a number of uh, clergy there. Um, not not as many as one would hope for. Uh, mm. Probably out of the 80, uh, my guess would be uh, you know, roughly 12 or 15 uh, priests. Mm. Um, but um, but uh, certainly more than, than, than usual. Um, right. You know, I, I don't know. You know, a lot of priests um, say that they're too busy to attend things like that. Yeah. Or they've got... Uh, other excuses, uh, it's a bit worrying because, you know, we can't always be busy. We also have to sometimes sit down and, and, and receive rather than thinking we have to give the whole time, and I, and I think that's quite important. Um, but anyway, but uh, yeah, I, I think the people that are there are certainly yeah. getting from it, and we've got to Bishop de Hoop there as well. Oh, very good. Oh, that's very nice. Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad it's going well. We continue to advertise it on Radio Veritas, and please God, it's going to go very well in all the different places that he's going to be speaking. But he certainly sounds a, a lovely person. It was great interviewing him just the other day. Yes, I heard that interview, yes. and, and, and how he was on the interview is how he is in life, which is fantastic. That's right, very <laughs> a nice. A really, really good uh, down-to-earth sort of fellow. That's you know? right. <laughs> Russell, what about the ANC National Policy Conference? You were there, I believe. Yeah, I was there on and off. Um, I, 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 was part of the, I was part of the media contingent. There were 1,600 journalists who were at the, at the conference, and I dipped in and out. I couldn't afford to spend um, all my time there. You know, it's fascinating to be there, Emil. Um, you, you, sort of the conference ends and you say to yourself, well, you know, am I any the wiser? Right. Um, because, you know, things are still sort of very blurred. And, and the whole idea that maybe just after this policy conference, uh, you know, figurehead would emerge, uh, who, who might be, you know, the candidates for the presidency come back here. I'm not sure that that's happened. Right. Um, I, I think you know, all the talk of unity yesterday is a big facade. I mean, there certainly is a sense that even the night before when I was there, uh, when they were talking about the white monopoly capital and the huge storm that broke afterwards saying that what was said was not reported to the media, and that shows that the factions are still very strong uh, within the ANC. Um, you know, the, the, a number of decisions which don't surprise us, the, the uh, 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 commitment to withdrawing from the ICC is something that, uh, you know, uh, it's quite clear that, you know, the ANC was going to do that. Um, one asks why. It seems to me that the important thing for them is to be seen to be in solidarity with other states in the AU who have decided to, that, the, that the International Criminal Court is uh, not doing Africa any favors. Um, of course, we're going to hear today what the International Criminal Court says about the Bashir visit to South Africa. Yeah. The, the scotching of the word white in monopoly capital uh, was very interesting, although there's a bigger fight about that. I, I think that, that's interesting. Um, uh, you know, that it has sort of said that, you know, the fight is not against the white monopoly capital, but monopoly capital, which is a global phenomenon. You know, we yeah. need to remember that. Yeah, okay. um, uh, you know the the worrying thing about uh, about the Reserve Bank yesterday. I'm I'm not so sure that um, that comment about the Reserve Bank about the ownership of the Reserve Bank. I I, I wonder if that's not a sort of a, a way of trying to pacify both factions within the ANC. You know, let's wait and see if anything changes. The question of land, you know, to be taken without compensation or to continue with the with the way that the ANC has already done it. There's definitely two opinions about that. So. Many things, you sort of sit back and you say, well, you know, they've said everything that we've heard before. There's two opinions. There doesn't seem to be, despite Zuma's big punch yesterday, that they're coming out of this more united. 
it doesn't seem to be a real sense that there is one definite direction in a lot of issues uh, uh, within within the ANC. And a lot's been taken back to the branches for discussion. Yeah. Like, for example, uh, the, the, the leadership issue, which was spoken about on, 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 on uh, uh, Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, you know, the loser... Uh, you know, Sinclair Vigalala from, from KwaZulu-Natal was sort of suggesting that the loser in the leadership automatically becomes one of the deputy presidents, that there should be two. Some people are saying this is a way of trying to unite the ANC, because generally the, the you know, the, the, the runners are always from different factions, yeah. so therefore both factions have got a role in leadership. Yeah. But this could also result in, in, in a much deeper divide, because you could have people in the top pulling against each other. Yeah. You know, so... This will go back to the branches, they will discuss it, and then hopefully by December there'll be some clarity. But, you know, if you were, wait, if you were looking for something new, so, you know, uh, I'm not sure that anything really new came out of it. Yeah. Um, a lot of new debate emerged, but not, not much is going to change, I don't think. Okay. Uh, and the last comment I'd like to make is I find it absolutely astoundingly interesting how... President Zuma carries on as normal, as if nothing's wrong. I mean, his opening, his opening speech, for example, I mean, it's just, honest to God, you have to say, does this man live in a parallel universe? <laughs> yes, I can. I know, I know exactly what you mean now. So, yeah, it's just, it, it, nothing seems to stick. I mean, you know, I, I some days look at him and with complete amazement wish that I had the same six yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Russell, listen, we have to move on. Just a quick uh, couple of thoughts about the 10th anniversary of the uh, Jesuit Institute. Yeah, this year, Father Emil, the Jesuit Institute is 10 years old, so we're going to have a little uh, celebration in August where, we go, where we've got uh, Professor Patrick Hornbeck, who is the Chair of Theology at Fordham Jesuit University in the Bronx in New York. He'll be in South Africa. He's actually coming to do a series of lectures at the University of Pretoria, very kindly offered to do a lecture for us. He's going to be talking about Pope Francis, a real student of St. Ignatius, question mark. Um, he's, uh, he's a very interesting speaker as well. So we're going to have a little celebration for the 10 years. It's quite amazing to think that the uh, Institute has been around for 10 years. In some, in some ways, it feels like, uh, you know, 30 years. In other ways, it just feels like a couple of years. So, uh, yeah, so this year we, we, we mark 10 years of existence. Well, congratulations on that. I must say, I can't believe it's 10 years, but there it is. So congratulations. I hope it goes very, very well. So August is going to be a big day, a month of celebrations, Jesuit celebrations, Dominican celebrations, 100 years in South Africa. We are. So, indeed, indeed. So we and, um, you know, so, uh, we, so we plan to have the little celebration around the time of the 31st of July, which is the patronal feast of the Society of Jesus, Ignatius Loyola. Right. Um, and, of course, there's the other celebration of 200 years of uh, the, church. the Catholic Church's uh, existence in South Africa, which right. I see the Southern Cross is full of. And if I may add one last thing. Right. We've got Father Anthony Egan, who's traveling around the country at the moment doing research, and he's going to produce a series of eight articles uh, on the history of the Catholic Church in South Africa, trying to look at it from our perspective now. So we're going to look at things like the church and colonialism, right. the church and justice, the church and education, the mm -hmm. church and racism, and he's going to uh, publish these. And uh, we've done a we've done a deal with the Daily Maverick that they'll be publishing the Daily Maverick as single articles over a period of seven or eight months. And then um, we're hoping that we'll be able to put this collection of essays together in a book uh, as a kind of memory of of the two hundred years. Okay, all right. Well, there we go. Well, congratulations on that. That's good to hear.
Thank you very much, Thanks. Father Russell. Lovely talking to you again, and have a super day. Thank you. You too. All the best. God bless you. That was Father Russell Pollitt of the Jesuit Institute.